Because you know there's a handful of people actually run everything. That's true. It's provable. Not it's all about not. control. To them we just cattle. Numbers battling each other while they're creeping in the shadows. Scheming, plotting, clocking your every move. Locked in your mind, brainwashed until it's rotten. Got the population operating as they want them. Symbolically mocking them, thinking nothing can stop them. So open your eyes to the lies of the evil. The poison in the minds and the lives of your people. And every time they lead you down a line to deceive you. And by then, it's always too late to see through the veil that they hide behind. Cause your third eye is blind. Better take a stand. We running out of time. Ain't nobody coming to save us. Fuck what you had in mind. Arm yourself with the truth and jump behind the battle line. Can we turn it around? Yeah, it's possible. Attached to the strings, being pulled by puppet masters. This is for the youth, searching for the proof. Keep on looking for the clues. I'll provide you with some truth. This is for the ones waking up from the spell, beginning to discover themselves. Yeah, this is for the youth, searching for the truth. Keep on looking for the clues. I'll provide you with some proof. Hey, yo, the stage is set, the game is rigged, the system isn't broken. It was designed this way, and only the blind obey. Give their mind away to these political, parasitical, cynical, criminal-minded individuals getting you to surrender your freedom. To the hands of the state, with every boogeyman they create, playing they order out of chaos in order to enslave us, distorted our brains to morally degrade us. Faces off against each other while they move the pieces on the global chessboard, directing the hordes. I don't come to bring peace, I was set with a sword, a truth to get you mentally ready for war. Step forth if you got the balls to call out these tyrants or submit your compliance through silence. Cause in this filthy system, ain't a single soul to trust. It ain't right versus left, it's a state versus this us. Is for the world, this is for the masses attached to the strings being pulled by puppet masters this is for the youth searching for the proof keep on looking for the clues i'll provide you with some truth this is for the ones waking up from the spell beginning to discover themselves yeah this is for the youth searching for the truth keep on looking for the clues i'll provide you with some proof this is for the world world Okay, well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of A Hitchhiker's Guide to Truth. That, of course, was the intro music to the show that y'all hear when uh, you might be tuning in to the pre-recorded interviews that I partake in. Of course, that's the one and only Mr. Joe Murray on the ones and twos there. Uh, find his stuff at freedomforall.online anyways uh, yeah like I've said before in the past it's time to step forward time to step forth we got the balls to call out these tyrants and that's what we gotta do so thank you all for tuning in and hearing me speak my mind and read some more of this book uh, government the biggest scam in history exposed a couple of announcements before I start getting back into the reading along with a quick video before we get back into the reading so 
um, join the Discord to talk to me live. The link is in the show notes. Um, go to freeyourmindne.com. That's my website. You see it right here on the screen in front of you. And go to storefrontier.com forward slash hitchhiker's guide. You'll be able to find my my merch there. I decided to throw my hat into the ring of uh, creating t-shirts and other other you know merch for all of you guys uh you know um so we talk a lot of shit about money and all this other stuff on this show but i'm working toward changing the world that we have while still needing to live in it so that's why i uh I've started to create items that you can buy and you can wear these shirts that will, well, the one shirt that's on there has a message on it and I, I quite like it. Um, but in any case, thank you for your, thank you for your, you know, patronage when you go there. Uh, again, I don't sell any ad space on this show. Um, so there's no like corporate sponsorship or anything like that on this show. So, you know, if you go to that website and you order a t-shirt from me, at least it's, you know, a little bit better, I'd say. So government-scam.com. That's where you can find all of Etienne Delabuete's work. And so, hmm, is there anything else that... I need to uh, bring up in this introduction. Um, Oh, for future listeners, if you're catching this on the replay and you're having trouble accessing it live, when you go to the live, when you, when you go to the live channel on odyssey.com, um, you're, you need to just press the play button. That was a, uh, that, that was that was a problem last week, um, I guess. So it's not a big deal. We'll, we'll figure it out. I am not attending to the comments on... I'm not attending to the comments on uh, on that live stream. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't suggest that you do any of the commenting or anything there. I suggest that you use Discord. Follow the link in the, in the show description and it'll pop up i'll be paying attention to it there so um i guess that's really all i gotta say for an intro right now and uh that you know thank you all for coming and i would like in in light of last week's show i have found a short video it's about eight minutes long um and it is basically just addressing, you know, how the public schools are used to brainwash children. So we're going to watch that now and uh, because it has to do with last week. So before we get into this week's, you know, this week's stuff, we're going to watch this video. So, um, yeah, it's uh, by the philosopher and 
it's like some YouTube channel or something like that. But it's it's a good video. I, I enjoyed watching it. I figured I might as well include it in the show tonight. So without any further ado, let's just click right over to that and, you know, we'll see you on the other side. Five ways that public school brainwashes children. Number five, the Pledge of Allegiance. Most public schools begin the school day with a ritualistic Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. What many do not know is that the pledge was written by Francis Julius Bellamy, a socialist minister who worked for a children's magazine selling U.S. flags as a premium to solicit subscriptions. The magazine, Youth's Companion, promoted the placement of schoolhouse flags and Bellamy traveled across the country to design and encourage flag-raising ceremonies with the pledge. Bellamy's socialist views were tied to the pledge's stance called the Bellamy Salute, a salute where children would raise one hand toward the flag, similar in form to the later adopting Hitler Youth. While the salute was eventually abandoned due to the negative associations with the Nazis, the socialist intent remained in the language of the pledge. Teachers continued to prompt children to mindlessly pledge their lives to a unified national government before the children were old enough to understand the implications of their recital. Today, a bell's ring is often used as a Pavlonian precursor, signaling students to stand. This form of brainwashing is so pervasive that it continues to be used past grade school in sporting events and at other public gathering activities. Number four, lowered constitutional protections against searches and seizures. Children are brainwashed by schools into thinking that they do not have a fundamental right to privacy. The United States Supreme Court ruled in New Jersey v. TLO that school staff act in loco parentis, meaning an adult in place of a parent. Because of this, the Supreme Court has stated that students can be searched under a lower protection standard of reasonable suspicion rather than probable cause while in school. Not only can school staff search under this lowered standard, but school police officers, often called school resource officers, are able to search students under this lowered standard as well when they are attempting to maintain a proper educational environment. Because of this, students grow up during their formative years thinking that they do not have an ability to say no to being seized and searched, whether by a government official or by a police officer. Even worse, many children are being acclimated to a prison-like lifestyle where students must enter the campus through barbed wire fences, metal detectors, and police drug-sniffing dogs. Schools invade privacy even further for students who participate in extracurricular activities such as after-school sports, by subjecting those participants to random drug tests. This legal climate brainwashes children into accepting a privacy-free police state as the norm. Number three, historical revisionism. Public school history textbooks are often filled with language that brainwashes children into thinking government is the savior and private business is the enemy. Social studies and civics textbooks often state that government regulation is critically necessary to fix economic woes while ignoring the harms done by government. The Civil War is discussed as a topic only about slavery instead of the nature of federal versus state power. Franklin D. Roosevelt is praised as a savior with his New Deal while ignoring his destruction of millions of animals and crops 
as he grabbed control of private economy. Military intervention in other countries is viewed as an honorable duty while ignoring the millions of innocent people dead due to second and third world destabilization. Social contract theory is taught to students as an absolute truth before students can even enter into contracts themselves. Anarchy is labeled as disordered violence and democracy as ordered virtue. According to the nation's report card produced by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, only 12% of high school seniors are at or above proficiency in history. This should be no surprise as American social studies courses have less to do with meaningful historical knowledge and more to do with government brainwashing for politically expedient ends. Number two, character training. Many schools offer a type of character training program called school-wide positive behavior supports to brainwash children into obedience. Schools will often put up character posters and guidelines to encourage students to act in accordance with school ideals. Teachers will be asked to nominate students who exhibit certain character attributes according to the character program for school-wide recognition. While this sounds like a positive approach to building integrity and camaraderie, it's actually a social manipulation program to associate government control positively with broad brush terminology. For example, when a student is given an award for the character pillar of respect, the principal may announce on the loudspeaker that the student was awarded a respect plaque because they, quote, did not talk when students were speaking or because, quote, they always obey authority. When schools make award announcement for such buzzwords like fairness, responsibility, and citizenship, they are using situational ethics to instill a peer pressure control to obey government. Students who ask too many questions or who are too willing to question the nature of the public school classroom are shamed using the buzzwords to bring the student into alignment with school control. Meaningful ethical discourse based on principles is disregarded in favor of situational ethics favoring government authority. Number one, classroom behavior management plans. Teachers actively brainwash their classrooms into obedience using a variety of tactics. During the first weeks of school, teachers carefully arrange seating and resource layout for optimal social control over students. Rules are placed for students to see, and teachers go over those rules to establish when teachers will threaten students with punishment. Teachers monitor students for adherence to the classroom procedures, called with-itness and will respond swiftly to curtail any behavior that is not in line with the teacher's goals. This monitoring and immediate response to off-task behavior is to instill in children the idea that they are always being watched and controlled. Teachers methodically manipulate students, from using positive reinforcement such as verbal praise or treats to reward compliant behavior, to negative reinforcement with shushing and yelling, to using threats of punishment for non-compliant behavior like notes home and detention slips. Teachers often will use emotional manipulation with students to get desired behavior through tone of voice, choice of engagement or non-engagement in calling on students, and through gentle touches of support such as high fives and pats on the back. While at first this may seem like harmless guidance, this classroom management system denies the emotional and intellectual development of a child. A child requires extended engagement to develop robust thinking and emotional skills. Instead of receiving this, teachers substitute fleeting social manipulations because they cannot engage individual students for prolonged periods of time with a limited class period. Teachers end up creating an environment where children are reared with transient maneuverings rather than meaningful conversations. Worse, 
Teachers who find a child troublesome will submit a child's file to a school-based team to analyze the child's behavior, working with other school personnel to manipulate a child into obedience to the school's rules. This team meeting is not limited to addressing students with violent behaviors, but includes students whose ideological discussions appear too extreme and must be curtailed by the school to maintain school order. Many go through the compulsory schooling processes without realizing how much coordination takes place behind closed doors by teachers, administrators, and school social workers to monitor, record, and control student thought and action. Some of this tracking and monitoring can be found by going through a student's cumulative folder at the school and by talking to exceptional student education coordinators about school-based team tracking and interventions. You may be shocked at what you discover. Thank you so much for supporting my work. If you'd like to help choose the next video I produce, join my Patreon page at the Philosopher's Boba Tea level. Subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter to stay up to date with my latest content. See you soon! Okay, so there it was. Um, kind of a nice sum, you know, sums it up. Uh, in a nice, you know, condensed way. So, um, with that being played and everything, let's continue. Oh, this is not the right. This is a little later on, so we're gonna we're gonna go back up. Sorry, guys. All right, here we go. Uh, all right, so this is where we left off last week. And obviously, this is where we'll be continuing. So, again, this is, uh, you want to find this book yourself, I really, really implore that you do. You go to government-scam.com and you'll be able to do that. So, uh, let's just jump right into it. Okay, so. All right. Propaganda using religious symbolism. Okay. It is no accident that the mainstream media, the propaganda arm of organized crime, is constantly using trick photography to give the rulers, political puppets, the appearance of holiness using religious symbolism. It is one of the many ways the rulers indoctrinate the masses with a pseudo-religion, statism, slipped to them using government schools, scouting, military, and police training, and mainstream media propaganda in news, films, and television programming. So we have here, time and time again, you know, <laughs> look at Trump. <laughs> look at Trump. <laughs> thumbs up. That is, <laughs> I didn't even notice that when I was, when I was pre-reading this. So, I mean, you know, time and time again, we have all these, all these examples of like, I mean, and, and you know, the, this nation is supposedly founded on a bunch of Christian beliefs uh, and everything like that. Allegedly, I don't know too many Christians that would willingly go these, these Christians these days that would willingly go and do the things that these people send the military out to go and do. But in any case, like we can definitely see here some shots lined up with 
it seems to be like you know Obama, Bush, halos over their heads. You know, yeah. Who else do we got here? We got uh, what's that guy's name? Um, Mitt Romney. You know, a bunch of these people. McCann, McCain, not McCann. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then you know we go down. It's just, it's just constant, constant, uh, you know, kind of subliminal, uh, you know, just kind of putting the image in your head, you know, where you kind of relate the two figures of perhaps Jesus Christ with some of the, you know, how he's pictured and the paintings of Jesus Christ with the halo or like angels, um, does that say, yeah, that says the first gay president with Barack Obama's face on it. And I don't know. <laughs> but anyways, uh, this part here that's written is is a description of, of the book. Uh, you know, it's it's in here time and time again. So let's let's do some more reading on the uh, religion of statism. Okay. The executive summary. Okay, so what is statism? Statism is the belief in the des uh, desirability, necess necessity, and legitimacy of a state or government. Even though there is no ironclad law of the universe that government is needed, desirable, or legitimate, it is a completely indoctrinated belief system, i.e. it has been mandatorily, uh, completely indoctrinated, mandatorily taught to the overwhelming majority of the public through government schools and private schools where the government controls the content of instructions through accreditation, textbook uh, amalgamation, and tradition. Statism is a pseudo-religious belief, i.e. government is not a physical, uh, physical entity that can be touched. It is a supernatural entity that promises to make the world a better place for the true believers who have accepted the belief system into their world view. The multiple generational, the multi-generational organized crime system that has been ruling the planet from behind the scenes uses the same techniques that religious, religion and cults use on their followers to indoctrinate the masses into accepting a ruling class. These techniques include religious symbolism in the form of, a, of the flag, the presidency or the pope, holy documents in the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, mandatory church schools, uh, common prayer where children are required to recite the Pledge of Allegiance every day at school and at scouting meetings, more common prayer and militarism at sporting events where the government pays teams to propagandize the audience, taking school children on field trips to Washington, D.C., uh, where they are taken to monuments to see the founding fathers uh, in deities, etc. These techniques produce citizens or cult members willing to hand over half their income uh, tithes and in the case of the enforcement class or the police, the techniques produce a classic shaved, shave-headed cult member willing to kill and cage nonconformists who ignore or violate the laws or commandments handed down by the Congress slash courts or church leadership who sit above the citizens and wear robes, vestments. In the case of the military shaved head cult members, they are willing to go abroad and kill whom they are told in wars slash police actions or crusades. 
Um, let's see here. Uh, key concepts. So there is no such thing as government. Uh, let's get into that. You can't go to Washington, D.C. and touch government. Okay, it is an idea belief system that is indoctrinated into kids by government schools and most in most private or per, uh, parochial schools through accreditation, tradition and textbook amalgamation. The word government literally means mind control in Latin. The translation of the original Latin is to control the mind. The root words are gubernare, to control, govern, rule, steer. You know, there's a lot of uh, other words, or mens mente, mente, which means mind. <clears throat> the belief in government is mandatorily indoctrinated into the masses. So, no one is born believing that handing over half your income in overt taxes, covert taxes, and inflation to a ruling class is a good idea. Find me one person that comes out saying, take my money. They don't, it, it's not, so right, let's go, let's keep going. Human beings are free, sentient beings who don't owe their allegiance or income to anyone just because they were born on one side or another of an imaginary line. We all come out the same way, most of us, you know. So the idea that, it can be like so the idea that it can be different for some people just because of a, an imaginary line is is a crazy idea in my opinion so mandatory or free government k through 12 schools and accredited private schools spend 12,000 hours indoctrinating and legitimizing this belief system in a hidden curriculum See, I've heard a, I've heard a few different numbers attached to that uh that that amount of hours I've heard like 15,000 hours over the course of 12 years um, or 12 to let's see now they want your kid going in at three and technically I mean you know now they want you know uh, colleges you know maybe two years of college being mixed into that so it's a that's a lot of time that's a lot of time so the idea and I'm sure that we'll probably see something like this written down but in case we don't the idea is, is that, you know, 12, so let's base, let's go right off the numbers that's in the book, 12,000 hours. So that's like what, 10 hours a day, maybe for however many years. Um, if you think that, that like your little hour and a half, two hours in the evening each day is going to make that much of an impact on the amount of programming that the public schools are doing you I, I believe you're kidding yourself into thinking that that's going to have any sort of impact um so moving on the belief is reinforced through government institutions government police and military training scouting pre-military training and flag worship paid for militarism slash statism at sporting events in a propaganda system where six companies running hundreds of subsidiaries subsidiaries giving give the in, uh, illusion of choice but are controlling the information the masses receive to limit their knowledge and secretly reinforcing the status quo and legitimacy of the system in movies television shows magazines etc so like when you turn on the t like you, you get it the government schools use classical cult indoctrination techniques on kids most government teachers and administrators are ignorant and willfully ignorant of the hidden curriculum and brainwash them 
and brainwash themselves and don't know slash refuse to research the history of the Prussian education system and its creator's own admissions that the system was designed to control the masses and instill obedience to authority. I've said it before, I'll say it again, I've had a change of heart when it comes to some of these, most of these teachers. I believe that that the overwhelming majority of teachers go into the field with the idea that they are truly helping children, that they want to be there to help children. But then they get in and it's not what they think. It's not, doesn't turn out the way that they dreamed. And therefore, and the teachers themselves are, are, are compelled to do the things that the, that the state run schools are telling the teachers to do as well. But that has to do with their paycheck and doing things that they doing things that might go against their principles just for money. So it's a real tightrope walk here with when it comes to the teachers themselves, it, like in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot of shit about public schools, but there were, in my experience, there were a couple of teachers that were very kind and not, and they they seemed to legitimately care about me in my experience in the schools however when the system is built off of what it's built off of that's not enough um and if if the teachers that were bad like were bad to me existed then it means that they can still exist today um and for some reason, the bad outweighs the good in these situations. I think, and I'm thinking that it's because I had no real control over it. So that's what I cling on to. Uh, but in any case, this is not about me. This is about the book. So let's continue. So what? Uh, so where were we? The indoctrination techniques include common prayer. So your pledge of allegiance uh, at school and national anthem at sporting events, civics and social studies that teach kids statist worldview. Uh, focus on learning about presidents or the popes and legitimacy of government, socialization of the enforcement class or the police through DARE programs, promotion of military and selective service and military recruiters in schools. Those things happen. Uh, it's, I don't know, even as a child, it didn't seem right with me. Uh, it just seemed awkward and odd that, that the police would come to school and tell you about drugs at like the age of 10, <laughs> you know? Uh, obedience techniques include the inability to leave or even go to the bathroom without permission, public shaming, where red, yellow, and green in, co uh, in collective punishment. Uh, so, like we saw in that we saw in that video, um, the board where the numbers and like they were all in the one section. But if you misbehave or you you know you behave according to their standards, you go up and down the board. And it's right there in front of everybody. Uh, and kids do act upon those things. They, they separate into their own little cliques and their own little classes. Uh, and inside the schools themselves, there's a bunch of, you know, different uh, classes in there. And a lot of the time, uh, it does turn out that it has to do with your performance in school and not always the neighborhoods that you grow up in. You'd think that the majority of the time that it would be based on where the kids are from and everything. But I mean, again, speaking from my own experience, there were kids that I would be in the neighborhood with who wouldn't want to hang out with me 
because I was kind of, in the eyes of the school, a troublemaker. Um, but I wasn't a bad person, but they thought I was based on my obedience in school, lack thereof. Sorry for hitting the microphone. Um, so another obedience technique is the response to Pavlovian, Pavlovian bells, walking in lines, obedience to police, etc. So obedience to police is like your, um, you know, your schools, like the police officers that hang out at the school all day, you know. Uh, are they there for public safety or are they there for public, you know, uh, fear? Like, who knows? Because I've seen some fights get broken up by the police in, inside of a school when I was in middle school. And these are, you know, just kids scrapping it out. Um, all right, so da, 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 oh, let's go back up. So we got ourselves some memes. Uh, let's see. So there is one religion more dangerous than any other. It has been uh, responsible for more murder and suffering than all others combined. Its followers blindly accept its rhetoric without any question while allowing themselves to be enslaved by its policies. This religion's worshippers are so injured that they have accepted its rules as laws and will obey them even to their own detriment. This religion is called statism. And what else do we got here? Oh, so The End of All Evil. That's an incredible book. Um, you can find that I have a book on tape available on Spotify. Uh, you can find my show on Spotify, listen to the book on tape there or find it wherever you want. It doesn't matter to me. Um, let's see. Some pretty good, pretty good, uh, visual representations there. Leave that up for just another another minute. Yeah, you guys look at it. All right, move on. Okay, so let's go. Let's talk about the shady history of the Constitution here. That's this next. That's this next uh, topic here. So the executive summary of this is it is frankly absurd on its face that any written document or political ritual like voting can grant one group of men the ability to rule and control another group of men, delegate rights that they don't have personally to a government or that succeeding generations can be bound by a contract that none of them or even their forebearers signed. For those who remain religiously attached to the holy document of the Constitution or believe themselves bound by an oath, they were tricked. Um, fraudulent inducement forced or paid to take then uh, here are here are some facts that support our thesis that organized crime interests have been using government and control of the media to rob and control the population since the very creation of the Constitution the creation and ratification of the Constitution is not what most government school children have been led to believe it wasn't designed to protect life liberty and property it doesn't even say property and, and uh, limit government as claimed and its failure in those aspects or even its inability to ensure that the most basic of freedoms specified in the Bill of Rights is evident is evidence of its failure as a protection from tyranny and its 
and its success as a means of enslaving, controlling, and robbing the population. Hmm. Okay, so the real story of the Constitution is a Wall Street of the time conspiracy, and that is the exact term that many of their contemporaries used to describe what had occurred, to create a system that would allow moneyed interests represented by political puppets to tax everyone on the continent for their benefit and control commerce and the currency, which they started doing immediately after ratification. The, conspi uh, the conspirators were led by slave-owning Freemasons, James Madison and John Jay, and suspected Freemasons and slave owner Alexander Hamilton. They hijacked a convention, convened only to revise the existing Articles of Confederation between the states, and after almost half the delegates refused to participate, wouldn't sign, and or left early, produced an unauthorized replacement giving the unprecedented control to a federal government that would be controlled by the exact participants in the years to come. In short order, they used this new government to begin taxing the population to pay off Wall Street. Uh, speculators who had bought up revolutionary war bonds from the veterans and, and businesses that had accepted them during the war for pennies on the dollar. Hamilton, as first secretary of the treasury, paid these specu uh, speculators 100% of the face value. He then went on to pay off the war debts of the individual states who had never paid them, especially mass, and at, uh, <laughs> and at the expense of those who had, Virginia. Thomas Jefferson openly questioned the validity of these debts and amounts. After Pennsylvania farmers began to rebel against progressive tax on whiskey that hit the poor hardest and benefited the large distilleries like George Washington, distillers like George Washington, Washington and Hamilton led an army of 13,000 into Pennsylvania to force compliance with the tax by rousting citizens out of bed into the snow, searching homes without warrants, and forcing citizens to, to sign oaths of loyalty to the federal government. Hmm. <laughs> so here's a funny meme right there i think that's probably george washington sitting there sign right there where it says we give ourselves the power to make up rules and take the wealth of others hmm. so absent a 12,000 hour indoctrination program run by the government and the ongoing propaganda of bought and paid for media, it is absurd to believe that a couple of dozen slave owners on a continent of 3 million people can write down a fancy piece of paper that they run everything, then have the new their newspapers proclaim it valid, but that seems to be exactly what happened. So let's see what Samuel Bryan had to say. That investigation into the nature and construction of the new constitution, which the conspir uh, conspirators have so long and zealously struggled against, has, notwithstanding their partial success, so far taken place as to ascertain the enormity of their criminality. That system, which was pompously displayed at the perfection of, as the perfection of government, proves upon examination to be the most odious system of tyranny that was ever projected. A many-headed hydra of despotism, whose complicated and various evils would be an infinitely more oppressive and effect, uh, aff afflictive than the scour uh, scourge of any single tyrant. The objects of dominion would be tortured to gratify the calls of ambition and cravings of power of rival despots containing uh, for the uh, scepter of superiority. 
the devoted people would experience a distraction of misery. Well, so let's take a look. Some of the history and the facts the government schools leave out. So the delegates assembled in Philadelphia in May 1787 for the purpose of amending, not replacing, the Articles of Confederation were very uh, different from the revolutionary. Sorry, I'm a little. From the revolutionaries that signed the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the famous revolutionaries were not present. Were not present. Jefferson and Adams were in Europe. Thomas Paine, Sam Adams, and Chris Gadsden were not chosen, and Patrick Henry refused to participate outright, claiming he smelt a rat. Out of the 74 delegates chosen, 19 refused or didn't attend. It's <clears throat> my daughter in the back. She's teething, so it's a little tough for her to stay asleep. But we're going to power through this. Out of the 55 delegates who showed up, 41 were politicians. 34 were lawyers. 11 were admitted Freemasons, with two additional that, were, that would join lodges after the convention, with over a dozen more suspected. According to, the Mar uh, to Maryland delegate James McHenry, at least 21 of the 55 delegates favored some form of monarchy. Can you believe that? The convention operated under great secrecy, held in the summer months with all the windows nailed shut, sentries posted at the door, and all the participants sworn to secrecy. The proceedings wouldn't be published for 32 years later. Madison's edited notes 53 years later. Can you see a little bit of a pattern there where this, so we're talking about modern, we want to, you know, do we want to take this and kind of juxtapose it to modern times where you see these things happening and the, the government is doing and then X amount of years later is when they actually publish what they did. So we're in a situation right now where this, with this goddamn vaccine and we've all seen it that that Pfizer wants to wait like 55 years in order to make public the information about the vaccine or their findings. Okay, so it's nothing new, right? Like they always wait. And I mean, by the time 32 years later, 53, Madison's Edison added, edited notes 53 years later, like these people were, the people responsible would have already been dead. Um, so let's continue. It's unlikely that the states would have sent delegates at all if they had known that the conspirators' plans to abolish the articles and replace them with a federal government and many delegates openly protested. William Patterson echoed many, we ought to keep within its limits or be charged by our constituents with usurpation. We have no power to go beyond the Confederation. If the Confederacy is wrong, then let us return to our states and obtain larger powers, not assume them ourselves. Of the 74 delegates appointed, 19 refused outright or didn't attend. 14 left early, uh, some in open disgust. Of the 41 who stayed through September, three refused to sign, leaving 38 out of 74, 53%, hardly a plurality. And they signed not as delegates, but in witness whereof. <clears throat> of the 38 who gave the who gave themselves the power to make up rules for everyone and take the wealth of others 80 percent would personally enrich themselves by holding some office under the constitution including two presidents one vice president five justices 11 senators and eight representatives <clears throat> Hmm. 
So control of perception, evident then as evident today. Similar to organized crimes control of the media today, the Wall Street crowd were controlling information or perception during the ratification debates. According to Van Doren's The Great Rehearsal, anti-federalist speeches were never printed because the uh, convention's transcriber Thomas Lloyd, quote, appears to have been bought off by the federalists and published only speeches by federalists Wilson and McKean, end quote. Serious allegations were made in New York and elsewhere of federalist mail tampering. <laughs> the Pennsylvania Herald, the only paper reporting on the ratification debates, was bought off as described. Quote, the authors and abaters of the new constitution shudder at the term conspirators being applied to them, as it designates their true character. Attempts to prevent discussion by shackling the press ought ever to be a signal of alarm to freemen. Freeman. And considered as an uh, enunciation of uh, meditated tyranny. When every means failed to shackle the press, the free and independent papers were attempted to be demolished by withdrawing all of the subscriptions to them within the sphere of the influence of the conspirators. The Pennsylvania Herald has been silenced. The editor is dismissed and the debates of the convention thereby suppressed. Wow. It's almost like the same stuff that's happening today. Um, so, so we got a reference to a book here by Kenneth W. Royce. It's a hologram of liberty, the Constitution's shocking alliance with big government. So what is that? The hologram of liberty explains the anti-federalist case and the evidence for the conspiracy of wealth, wealthy speculators, lawyers, and politicians to impose a one-sided contract to control and tax the population in a scheme that personally enriches themselves. The summary, summary borrows liberally from Royce's work with and other scholars. So let's do this, the shady history of the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, so the, the massive five-story youth's companion building built in 1892 and known locally in Boston as the Pledge of Allegiance building still stands today and gives an idea of the size and scope of the operation. You know, I've probably walked past that building. Not even knowing it. <laughs> Uh, so let's go into it. The original Pledge of Allegiance was a media creation and avowed national socialists and Freemasons running a well-financed publishing company targeting kids in the late 19th century. The company was the Perry Mason Company, and they published the most popular magazine of the time called The Youth's Companion. The magazine's circulation hit over 500,000 in 1897 and, pu and pushed a national socialist slash military socialism agenda. Pledge of Allegiance was attributed to staff writer and Freemason Francis Bellamy, while the socialist Bellamy salute, which came to be used by other National Socialist regimes, included, including Adolf Hitler's, is created to junior uh, partner, editor, and fellow Freemason James Upham, who also assigned the writing of the, pay, of the pledge to Bellamy. Francis Bellamy's cousin, Edward Bellamy, son of a Freemason, was the author of an 18, 1888 international bestseller advocating military and socialism, 
military socialism called Looking Backward from 2000 to 1887, frequently cited as the Bible of National Socialism. The Bellamy's were unapologetic in their advocation of the National Socialism and Military Socialism, mandatory government schools, militarism, and used their magazine to begin popularizing a National Pledge of Allegiance which they first published in 1892 with the premium program designed to promote, sell, and distribute the federal U.S. flag into local schools where it had not been used or present before, which contributed to the federal takeover of the individual states and the average person's religious attachment to an artificially indoctrinated holy symbol. Well, there you have it. So what are some of the key concepts here? Most Americans are familiar with the infamous Heil Hitler, or Nazi salute, pictured here being taught to children by government teachers in Nazi Germany, but are unaware that the salute originated in the United States, where it was used for over three decades prior to the Nazis' adoption in our mandatory, mandatory government school systems, so used between 1892 and 1926. The pledge and salute were used to forcefully indoctrinate our population into the ideas of national socialism and military socialism that have supplemented, uh, sub, supplanted the supposedly original intent of limited government and freedom that U.S. schools still pretend to exist. National socialism, with its taxation, militarism, robotic saluting, federal control, mandatory schools, running the Prussian model of education, and history of tyranny, was and remains antithetical to the freedom supposedly uh, enshrined in the Constitution. The Pledge of Allegiance is forced on, to, on students in mandatory government schools from preschool and kindergarten before the children are old enough to comprehend the ideas to which they are pledging their allegiance, which is in, it, in and of itself unethically manipulative. So, we're, you know, we're kind of talking about what that, what that uh, young lady was talking about in her video. Um, while the original Bellamy salute featured the upturned hand in, pra in practice school, children simply stuck out their hands and face down became the norm and is the version that is visible in the majority of surviving photographs from the time, with the noted exception of a series taken by Hollywood's LA Times in 1942 and 43, around the time of the changeover to the hand over the heart. <laughs> so it's like last episode where I mentioned like, they hold, held their hand up like, you know, let me receive, let me receive the, the you know, the, the, oh, the consecration of the Eucharist. And it's like when you go to church and you get the little wafer. <laughs> um, the, pro, the professionally lit classroom scene on the cover of this book and others appear to be a coordinated attempt to distance the pledge from the then obvious crimes of the German socialists by returning to the original Bellamy version with the upturned palm proving that the difference between socialism and fascism is just a matter of degree. So here, here's some... Uh, well, so the best short video, I should have set this up. I could have probably set this up, but I didn't because I suck at this. 
So the video features clips from 1925 movie The Vanishing American showing American Indian children being indoctrinated into the artificial religion of statism in a mandatory government school by a white teacher. The scene demonstrates that once organized crime conquered the Indians and stole their land, they used the Prussian model of education in mandatory Indian boarding schools where children were separated from their families to turn the once proud and free Native Americans into taxpayers and order followers. The film makes a hero out of the uh, Nephi, a tribal leader uh, who provides horses for the U.S. Army and gets other Indians to enlist and fight in World War I, a foreign war. The dynamic illustrate uh, the dynamic illustrates the this dynamic illustrates the original Etienne de la Boetie's observation that once conquered most but not all can be made to adopt the habits and customs of their enslavers. So we got a quote from the youth companion. At a signal from the principal, uh, the, the pupils in ordered ranks. Hands to their si the sides face the flag. Another signal is given. Every pupil gives the flag the military salute. Right hand lifted, palm downward, to align with the forehead and close to it. Standing thus, all repeated together slowly, I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. At the words, to my flag, the right hand is extended gracefully, palm upward, toward the flag and remains in this gesture till the end of the affirmation whereupon all hands immediately drop to the side that's some crazy shit <laughs> uh, so here's another book the pledge of allegiance and the swastika secrets nazism in the usa from francis bellamy and edward bellamy by dr rex curry and ian teeny uh, in addition to exposing the history of the Socialist Pledge of Allegiance, this book documents how the swastika was adopted and rotated into Nazi Germany to symbolize the S of Socialism. Huh. Socialism, communism, and other forms of collectivism are tools used by organized crime to control and chump large segments of the population with the promise of money stolen from others. Hmm. In practice, the majority of U.S. students just stuck out their hands and recited the pledge with palms down. Hollywood began, begins glamorizing the salute in 1907's Ben-Hur, and it is adopted by Italian fascists in 1919, and then the National Socialist German Workers and the Nazi Party in 1926, and the German Army in 1944. <clears throat> okay, so... Here we go, public or government school indoctrination. Uh, by Glor uh, so here, the executive summary, the American school system directly modeled after the 19th century Prussian approach is rooted heavily in control, obedience, and indoctrination. Um, by glorifying collectivism and authority, public or government schools prime children to tact uh, tactically To tacit, yeah, tacitly accept my what I'm reading off of is a bit smaller than what you're seeing, so I'm, I apologize. To tacitly accept uh, subsequent authoritarianism from all realms of government and military, from monopolizing students' time and demanding that they ask for permi ask permission for basic human functions like going to the bathroom, to impose one size fits all teaching approaches, submission and conformity are constantly promoted.
<clears throat> students are indoctrinated into the pseudo-religion of statism using the same techniques employed by other cults. For example, pledges, oaths, holy documents, trips to D.C. to see the temples and deities, selectively presented snippets of history supported these myths, imbuing students with an unshakable faith in the government's universal inevitability and righteousness. Militarism and nationalism pervade the system through junior training programs like ROTC and the state's legitimacy is never questioned or debated. Other methods of control permeate the system. In recent years, the pharmaceutical industry has benefited from the increase in diagnoses of ADD and ADHD in children, which is largely due to the children's inability to conform to school's rigid standards of control. These drugs, as well as mandatory vaccines, directly affect students' body chemistry. So do the vast supplies of genetically modified pesticide-ridden foods provided by the state's empowered uh, conglomerations. Because of these hidden methods of control and modern consequences of rampant statism, public schooling is ground zero for producing obedient statist subjects and order followers willing to kill on command. So, some key concepts here. Obedience to the government, police, and authority figures in Lesson 1. is lesson number one. Assigned seating imposes constant uniform control over student movement. It's true. Drill bells dictate where and when students may move during the course of the day. Students are usually required to collectively stand and pledge allegiance to the flag, which continues with the additional common prayer of the anthem at sporting events. If students are late or do not adhere to other standards, they face punitive measures including public shaming, and red, yellow, slash green troublemaker boards. On the other side of the coin, students are often forced to face collective punishment for the actions of a single student. Yep. How many times, have, maybe when you were in school, did you hear, oh, we all have to do, oh, thanks to, uh, thanks to, you know, Jimmy, we all have to, now we all, our good time gets ruined. And everyone's like, oh, what the fuck, Jim? Uh, so, moving on. Police are increasingly present in schools, patrolling campuses, enforcing security checks with metal detectors and conducting random searches of students' private property, reinforcing the notion that school is a prison and everyone must submit to government or organized crime control from an early age. So, and they go, well, you know, you're, you're, on, school, you're on school property. Yeah, well, it's public property, isn't it? Like school, public school, public it's public property. Or they say things like, "Oh, you don't have." I've literally like heard people claim that that kids don't have the same rights as adults. Like I, those words have been said to me, not ne not necessarily about me, but it's been said to me. Like it's, it's a, that's sick. Like if. if <laughs> If anyone, if you ever catch anyone saying that, like that person is fucking sick in the head. Um, so indoctrination into the hidden religion of statism is education, and students are expected to pledge allegiance to an artificial religious symbol in a in a kind of common prayer on a daily basis from uh, grades K through twelve. 
They are taught that government is both legitimate, necessary, and desirable without ever examining those premises, premises uh, uh, or the immorality of the concept. Young students learn of the mythology of the Founding Fathers, social contract, uh, the holy documents of the Constitution, uh, the Bill of Rights, the justifications for the government's murderous wars, and that stealing is okay when government does it. What is left out of these lessons is equally important from the CIA's covert and undemocratic operations to the Federal Reserve and the real reasons for war. Whether it is history, civics, or any other subject, teaching methods usually require memorization, regurgitation, and often standardized uh, multiple-choice testing methods that crush independent thought and promote obedience. So one good, a really great example would be like um, the way that they the way that they teach math in school these days, it's like, you know, if you didn't get, so you have to like prove how you got to the answer, but if you didn't get to the answer the way the teacher wanted you to get to the answer, then you still got it wrong, even if the outcome is the same. So it's like, what the fuck? So it's like, okay, two plus two equals four. Well, we all know that, but if the student was like, well, it makes more sense to, to me if I you know do three plus one, the teacher's still like, well, that's not the that's not right. But the answer is still four. In any case, that's a shitty example. Um, but let's move on to chemical control, which uh, which is growing more and more with each passing day. The thanks to, to propagandized obedience and state-sanctioned influence of the pharmaceutical industry and food industry, children are pumped full of chemicals from ADD and ADHD drugs and mercury and aluminum-laced vaccines to toxic processed food with genetically modified ingredients, sugar, glutamates, glyphosate, refined grains, RBGH, BPAs and BPS, soy, and fluoridated water. Classic indoctrination methods combined with a fetish for submission in the, in the modern American government-sponsored uh, corporatocracy create docile status children, some of whom ultimately shave their heads and become order followers. Here we go. Uh, so here's some, you know, resources to learn more. Um, so... Yeah, John Taylor Gatto. Again, like go go to find uh, the ultimate history lesson with John Taylor Gatto. Uh, that's that's a really good, that's a really good five hour interview and done in five different five different sections um, over the course of five hours. So one hour per section. Richard Grove interviewing John Taylor Gatto. Um, so we have any one of these would be great. Wish I could play that radio interview. Um, so let's 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 uh, let's read this now. Could the real goal of mandatory government education be shaved-headed cult members or order followers willing to kill foreigners and enforce orders from the leaders of an artificially indoctrinated status religion? Is this why classic textbook cult indoctrination techniques, including Pavlovian bells, pledges and oaths, flags and artificial holy symbols, collective punishment, public shaming, scouting, and junior ROTC uniforms, and other and others are being used in schools? Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so the Prussian education model is basically like, I guess, uh, the Prussians got their asses whooped by like Napoleon because their army was just a bunch of farmers while Napoleon had like a well, well-trained army and just basically kicked their ass. Um, so the Prussians were like, how the fuck is this? Like, how can we never let this happen again? So they basically constructed, constructed a public education system where it was like outcome based and that the outcome would be you either work in the factories or you go into the military and the and they basically just took children and trained them their entire lives to uh, just be order followers so let's read a quote from none other than the man himself sarcasm charles darwin from the descent of man 1871 it is a worthy of it is worthy of remark that a belief constantly uh, in, uh, inculcated during the early years of life, whilst the brain is still is impressible, uh, appears to acquire most almost the nature of uh, an instinct, and the very essence of an instinct is that it is followed independently of reason. Thanks, Charles Darwin, you fucking racist eugenist. Okay, so the private Federal Reserve and theft of fractional reserve banking. In 1913, organized crime banking interests lobbied and bribed Congress to pass the Federal Reserve Act, which created the private Federal Reserve, the FED, Fed to backstop and legalize the ability of private banks to create money out of thin air and lend it at interest. The process is called fractional reserve banking. And the basics of the swindle is that when you go to the bank to get a mortgage, the bank is not lending you another depositor's money. They simply create the money with a few strokes of the keyboard and the average person spends the rest of their life paying interest on a loan created out of thin air. If a bank gets in financial trouble and is and or experiences a run of the bank where the depositors begin to pull their money, then the Fed steps in and provides the troubled banks or bank all, uh, unlimited capital to maintain faith in the crooked system. So here's a chart. The value and supply of the U.S. dollar, Federal Reserve, the U.S. $1 Federal Reserve note. Okay, up to 2009. So this is very outdated, but I'm sure that it would just be going like all the way, like all the way up. Like you're talking like massive, just, <laughs> um, and let's see. I can't even read that. Let's zoom in on that. Can we even do that? No, we can't. Can we? No, that's illegible. Let me just, all right, one more, Beep. all right. So in addition to the inherent unfairness of allowing certain companies or banks the monopoly privilege of creating money, the process steals the purchasing power from the dollar earned and saved by everyone else in society. 
as the banks create more and more dollars, the excess dollars begin to compete with the existing dollars in the market and bid up prices and simultaneously reduce the purchasing power of the existing dollars in circulation. This is the main reason why the cost of almost everything in the economy, housing, healthcare, education, energy, etc., is going up when, absent the organized crime money system, costs should be going down as innovations and productivity improvements reduce the cost associated with producing the necessities and luxuries of everyday life. Not only is society being robbed by the infl uh, inflationary theft of rising prices, but it is being robbed of the reduced cost and growing purchasing power that would exist absent the organized crime banking system. Absent the anomalies of hot housing markets and hot stocks, it isn't that the value of your home and portfolio is are rising. It now simply takes more rapidly depreciating dollars to buy the same amount of housing and stocks. I, yeah, I can see that. I can make sense of that. It's like, you know, things are being created easier. So why is it harder to get them? There's another here's another picture, excuse me. The top 50 controlled holders. The shareholders are ranked by network control. Um, so it's just basically just, you know. I wish it wasn't cut out like that. I wish that it was just one big page. I'd be able to make more sense of it. So let's just keep going. The results to the right there. Uh, Monopoly. Imagine you are playing the game Monopoly with a group of people that were the people where the banker is cheating and giving himself unlimited funds. At the end of the game, who owns everything on the board and who are renters and debtors? The ability to create money out of thin air has enabled the bankers to buy, consolidate, and weaponize the media into nothing but deception and distraction. And two, provided unlimited funds to a small handful of organized crime companies to consolidate their own industries and trade as a cartel. See our liberator folder on banking cartels, monopoly consolidation. The list above, so that list comes from a 2011 study called the Network of Global Corporate Control, which analyzed 37 million global companies and 43,060 transnational corporations and built a model of who owns and controls what and discovered that just 147 firms, primarily banks and financial uh, institutions, control 40% of global wealth. Whew. That's insane. Okay, so moving forward. You know, I, I I just gotta be honest about this after getting through that part. I I don't I just on principle know that like the whole money thing is just absolutely corrupt. Like it just is. It just doesn't make any sense. Where it's 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 not really worth anything. It's just a matter of it, it, I don't know. Money is just like a, it's it's another it's another god really. You know. Um. The propaganda matrix. Man, I wish the resolution on this was a lot better. I can't fucking make that out. I want to read these memes. <laughs> um, 
So the most powerful weapon on the planet is control of perception, and it is a binary weapon made up of hundreds of companies, government agencies, and organizations that give the population their inf their information to create and control their culture. Culture is the dominant belief system, and the root word is cult, which is why police, judges, bailiffs, sheriffs, prosecutors, prison guards, and soul dyers, soldiers, and other order followers can't be reasoned with. Just think about that for a second. Every interaction that you've ever had with any of those people in those jobs, how many of them, how, how many of them have, have been, have been able to have been, been able to be talked to? Like, can you really get through to them? <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think you can, you know, I know I've not been able to get through to any of them. And they all do the same kind of stuff. They just make you want, you know, they make you, uh, they subjugate you basically. All right. You know, Plato tells this story in his allegory of the cave where prisoners were chained facing the wall of a deep cave. Behind the prisoners was a walkway and behind the walkway was a fire. Puppeteers crossed the walkway holding objects that cast shadows on the wall. The shadow play became the prisoner's life, and even when one prisoner escaped to see the reality of the world, he was unable to explain that reality to his former friends because they had no frame of reference, because they all, because all they ever knew was the shadow play. Organized crime governments have used this system to convince their populations that the world is a certain way and it is everyone's duty to turn over 50% of their income in overt or covert taxes while using the theft of inflation, military procurement fraud, no-bid contracts, government-granted monopolies, and dozens of other in in invisible means of economic warfare against them. This allows organized crime to steal trillions and easily spend hundreds of billions a year controlling every screen and distracting and deceiving every audience. Obscene criminal profits are generated in many ways. The theft of taxes, which are laundered through the governments to, be, to the organized crime slave owners, through their monopoly banking, oil, pharma, military, industrial complex companies, interest on the national debt, bailouts, and free money from fractional reserve banking for big banking, mandatory mercury and aluminum-laced vaccines for big pharma, ethanol and agricultural subsidies for big ag, unneeded military spending benefits, the big military-industrial intelligence complex who continually menace the population with staged wars and false flag terrorism, the fact that the world is self-organizing, both political parties are run by the same criminal interests, and that there is no need for governments and the force and violence they employ are ideas that are never presented to the tax slaves on any channel until now. Okay, so 
My favorite analogy about the lamestream media is that the former Soviet Union was a very poor country. They could only afford two state propaganda organs, Pravda and Izvestia. In Russian, Pravda means truth, and Izvestia is loosely translated as the news. The running joke in the Soviet Union was, there is no truth in Pravda, and there is no news in Izvestia. We are slash were a very wealthy country. We have six major propaganda organs. The organized crime oligarchy that controls the country and much of the planet has been using their complete control of virtually everything that the average person sees on a given day to weave an artificially created reality with regard to politics, economics, history, and current events. When they are not distracting us with sports and mindless entertainment, corrupting our morals, predictively programming us, or other propaganda crimes. So here we have a chart. Okay, it's cut off. There's a lot more in there. Um, but let's read this quote here. Deception becomes more difficult as the number of channels of information available to the target increases. However, within limits, the greater the number of controlled channels, the greater the likelihood the deception will be believed. So that comes from a CIA deception research program paper from June 1981. It's called Deception Maxims, Fact and Folklore. The main identifiable vehicles for creating and managing and controlling the content of mainstream media are Bilderberg Group, Trilateral Commission, and Council on Foreign Relations. They control the media. And the CIA's control of key journalists that, were, that was made public during the Church Committee hearings of 1975, where it was dis disclosed that the CIA had hundreds of journalists on the payroll. A quote from the commission. The CIA currently maintains a network of several hundred foreign individuals around the world who provide intelligence for the CIA and at, at times attempt to influence opinion through the use of covert propaganda. These individuals provide the CIA with direct access to a large number of newspapers and periodicals, scores of press services and news agencies, radio and television stations, commercial book publishers, and other foreign media outlets. <sighs> The Operation Mar Mockingbird, right? Um, I did an episode with with uh, I, I did an episode with uh, Sean McCann about uh, it's called esoteric influence of esoteric influence of television. We basically go over how this you know big you know big six you know there's a big uh, there's big six uh, companies. Uh, they all the, how they control all the things that you see on your television. So here we go: the control of the media and, by extension, human perception. Okay. <laughs> Here's a nice quote: If there was really an organized crime conspiracy to enslave the population, then surely someone would have reported it on the media. In our one-pager, The Propaganda Matrix, we feature a media ownership chart showing how six media companies running hundreds of subsidiaries, subsidiaries give the population the illusion of choice and diversity of opinion. 
While that visualization illustrates the ownership structure of the media, including movies, television, book, and magazine publishers, theaters, and theme parks, it does not explain how individual reporters, editors, and publishers are given their marching orders to widely cover up government criminality and propagandize the public across hundreds of media platforms. If you want to rob the world, you have to have meetings. In this one pager, we feature visualizations from Swiss propaganda research showing how just three organizations, the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Trilateral Commission, are able to coordinate the activities of hundreds of publishers, um, editors, and journalists. I am not suggesting that every person receives specific, uh, specific instructions, even though prominent journalists, including Udo Ulfkut, have <laughs> I can't pronounce that name, have admitted to publishing stories written by the CIA under his name, uh, under his name in the LA Times, Ken Dillanian, who was outed by as a CIA tool through an agency uh, FOIA request. Most honest journalists are fired or even killed, as was San Jose Mercury news reporter Gary Webb, Rolling Stones Michael Hastings, or Danny uh, Casalaro, wherever they try to report on forbidden topics. The CIA drug running 9-11 truth, massacre and subsequent cover-up of 80 men, women, and children in Waco. Mm -hmm. The criminality of fractional reserve banking and federal reserve policy intelligent and immoral publishers, editors, and reporters like Bilderberg, journalists, Farid, Zakaria, and George Stephanopoulos can easily get themselves on the gravy train of six, seven, or even eight-figure salaries by just by uh, not just covering up the corruption, but taking leadership positions and creating the disseminating propaganda that supports our manufactured and unnecessary multi-trillion dollar wars and the mass theft of trillions through bailouts and inflation. The key concepts to understand is that if organized crime is stealing trillions of dollars through fractional reserve banking, unnecessary military spending, bank bailouts, and other criminality, uh, then it is easy and cost-effective for them to spend a couple of hundred billion a year to buy up and control the media. Almost every single channel, almost every single publication, including the couple of hundred people who are paid such allowed to talk politics and current events on the weaponized tell, tell live vision are <laughs> controlled. Um, so we're going to click on that. So we have here the Council on Foreign Relations, Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, it's basically just, you know, people who have sat on them, right, on all these. So uh, I shouldn't have clicked on this, but whatever. Um, fuck. <laughs> I just ruined this. God damn it. While I fix that, let's just go back to here. Um,
God damn it. Hold on a second here. We'll just uh we'll just do this again real quick. Why did I do that? Try to put on a good show for everybody. And I go and do something like this. What a dick. <laughs> Let's see. Um, safe to say I'm not going to do that ever again. I just got to make sure I... Where were we? Oh, we're way past it. Uh, here we were. Okay, so I'm not going to do that again. This 2017 chart shows how one organization, the Council on Foreign Relations, or the CFR, has infiltrated and prom promoted its membership into the key positions of media, entertainment, politics, banking, di diplomacy, the military, think tanks, NGOs, universities, and the intelligence agencies for decades through both Democratic and Republican agencies for decades through yeah, administrations. The link below to, is to a 2010 chart from the Fund to Restore an Educated Electorate showing the multi-generational dominance of the CFR Bilderberg Group and Trilateral Commission. You guys want to look at this stuff? I mean, you go get the get the Liberator, you know, the 16 gigabyte hard drive from uh, government-scam.com. So here, uh, you know, you can't really see any of this, but there's another chart. So, organized crimes, front groups, and secret societies. Well, you know what? Um, this might be a good place to leave the show, seeing how, like, I just kind of took the wind out of my sails by messing that up and whatever. Uh, that's okay. Mistakes happen. So you just, you know, get back, uh, get back to it. And, you know, I've been... You know, it'll be okay. So why don't we do a little exploring here? Nope, not that one. Oh, I have an idea that we could do. I have an idea. We could, uh... Got some short videos here. You could watch 
notice something that might actually not even where, where's my volume here that might not actually be playing i'm not sure <laughs> um let's do this instead okay da, 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 da. so we were talking about the pledge of allegiance earlier Okay, let's do this. Again. So there's this video going around on Facebook of this dude named John Burke, who also calls himself Soldier of Steel, going on an incoherent, whiny, emotional rant after seeing Doing a picture live. online of a school permission slip that basically acknowledges that students... So there's this video going around on Facebook of this dude named John Burke, who also calls himself Soldier of Steel, going on an incoherent, whiny, emotional rant after seeing a picture online of a school permission slip that basically acknowledges that students have the freedom to opt out of reciting the Pledge of Allegiance if they want to. It says, I understand my rights as a parent and I request that my child be excused from reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. This includes standing and placing his or her right hand over his or her heart. In a free country, freedom of choice should be a no-brainer. But for some reason, that caused this dude to just completely flip out. So I saw a letter today of a student who brought home a school note saying that they could choose to opt out of saying the Pledge of Allegiance because it was offensive. Okay, stop right there. From the very beginning, he's already adding in details that weren't even there in the first place. Where in the permission slip does it say anything at all about something being offensive? Choosing not to partake in something doesn't always have to mean it's because it's offensive. You don't need a reason to choose not to partake in something. That's called freedom. America is the land of opportunity for the hard workers. Men and women have died for this freedom that we have in this country, to do as we wish, to say and, and be free, to have freedom of speech. We have so many freedoms that so many citizens have taken for granted. They just don't realize it. You can go to these third world countries out there that are war-torn, that don't have a tenth of the freedoms that we have today. But people come into this country, which... Oh, we, we already pretty much live in a third world country, but in any case, yeah, let's go. It's fine. If you want to come over here and be a Muslim and practice your religion, nothing wrong with that. You mean people in war-torn countries we've helped destroy have less freedom than us? No way. And how did we get on the topic of religion? Like, what is this dude even talking about? It's funny because you can already tell the video is going to be good by the description, which is hilarious. The description starts out, Don't come into my country. Why are you talking about someone coming into your country? The picture you saw has nothing to do with that. Then it says, Take your ass back to the Middle East. What does this have to do with the Middle East? This dude is literally so offended, he's making up his own stories now about the picture of the person. Look at this guy. When you come Sorry. here and start demanding that America panders to you and changes to fit your needs, you have went the wrong direction. I will say the Pledge of Allegiance. Why? Because I pledge my allegiance to a country that has given me everything I've got, that I fought for, that our forefathers died for. It is a true land of the free and home of the brave. But your bitch ass, your students, and that's why we have a generation of bitches right now, because you want to protest everything. Half of you have never even fought for anything in your fucking life. You've had, you've had everything handed to you, and you don't want to say a few simple words, such as, I pledge allegiance to the flag. You don't want to say that. Why? Because in my mind, you're not American. Then you take your bitch ass to the Middle East and see how far you make it over there. Don't come in my country and sit there and say, I shouldn't have to say it because it's offensive. Fuck you and your feelings. Be a patriot, not a bitch, in the arena. <laughs> All it was was a picture of a permission slip to have the freedom to opt out. And this dude is talking about offended protesters, the Middle East, and immigrants. 
none of which have anything to do with the picture. Out of all the incoherent thoughts in the video, one thing I have gathered from this mindless stupidity is that having the freedom of choice is bad. So I want to ask you, John Burke, what's your solution to this issue of too much freedom? That everyone be forced <laughs> to say it instead of having a choice? You say that they're demanding that everyone pander to them, yet here you are demanding that everyone be forced to say a chant to an inanimate object that was written by a socialist. See, there we go. If yeah. we saw other countries forcing people to pledge their undying allegiance to an object, we would call that brainwashing. But don't ever say that about the Pledge of Allegiance because this guy will rant on the internet about how offended he is that you have the choice <laughs> of whether or not you want to exercise the free speech of reciting a love poem to a cloth. This guy looks for occasions to be offended. It's funny because people like this are always talking about how everyone gets offended so easily, yet here he is getting all emotional and offended about a picture he saw online. This is a typical example of someone basing their beliefs off of feelings and emotion rather than logic. The Pledge of Allegiance was just something that was created by a man in the first place. Why should somebody be forced to recite something that was written by somebody else, no matter what it is? If you think about it, it really is a strange idea. So let me know what you think. Should we all be forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance, or should we have the freedom to choose whether or not we want to? Let me know what you think in a comment below, and I'll see you next time. Let us know what you think in this comment below. Okay. <laughs> The, what do you mean? That dude's got a fucking anarchy symbol on his goddamn laptop, and he's asking about whether or not we should be able to have the choice or not. Like, what are you talking about, bro? But in any case, yeah, that's that's kind of hilarious. That dude looked like he was so mad. Oh man. Ooh. What the hell is this one? Yeah. Uh, this is so exciting. It's definitely as exciting as last week. I got nothing. Let's watch one more video, and then I think I think I'll just. I think I'll just get out of here. Uh, So there's this video going around on Facebook oh, of this. One. All right. <laughs> Let's do a different one. Five ways that public school brainwashes children. Number five. You're listening to The Corbett Report.
Okay. Al-Qaeda terrorist. 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 September the 11th. Al-Qaeda. 9-11 hijackers. Jihadist. Terrorist organizations. Terror attack. Bin Laden. September 11th. Terrorist. The self-confessed mastermind. Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. Terrible new terrorist organization. September 11th. Our enemy is a radical network of terrorists and every government that supports them. Forget for one moment everything you've been told about September 11th, 2001. This is James Instead, Corbett, the Corbett Report. let's ask ourselves one question. Please enjoy. What was 9-11? A terrorist is, uh, atrocity? An attack on America? If you want to stick around for the full hour, do so. Come back A day that changed everything. Have a good night. The question may seem simple, but how we answer it is of vital importance. It determines how we proceed with our investigation of that day. And once you strip away the emotional rhetoric and the fear-inducing imagery, we're left with the simple truth. 9-11 was a crime. And as with any crime, there is one overriding imperative that detectives must follow to identify the perpetrators. Follow the money. This is an investigation of the 9-11 money trail. In 1998, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey agreed to privatize the World Trade Center, the complex of office towers in Lower Manhattan that they had owned and operated since their construction in 1973. In April 2001, an agreement was reached with a consortium of investors led by Silverstein Properties, and on July 24, 2001, Larry Silverstein, who already owned World Trade Center Building 7, signed a 99-year lease for the Twin Towers and Buildings 4 and 5. The lease was for $3.2 billion and was financed by a bridge loan from GMAC, the commercial mortgage arm of General Motors, as well as $111 million from Lloyd Goldman and Joseph Kerr, individual real estate investors. Silverstein Properties only put down $14 million of its own money. The deal was unusual in a variety of ways. Although the Port Authority carried only $1.5 billion of insurance coverage on the WTC complex, which earlier that year had been valued at $1.2 billion, Silverstein had insisted on doubling that amount, insuring the buildings for $3.55 billion. Silverstein's insurance broker struggled to put that much coverage in place and ultimately had to split it among 25 dealers. The negotiations were so involved that only temporary contracts were in place for the insurance at the time the lease was signed, and by September the contracts were still being finalized. Silverstein's group was also explicitly given the right to rebuild the structures if they were destroyed, and even to expand the amount of retail space on the site if rebuilding did take place. Within hours of the destruction of the Twin Towers on September 11th, Silverstein was on the phone to his lawyers, trying to determine if his insurance policies could construe the attacks as two separate, insurable incidents rather than one. Silverstein spent years in the courts attempting to win $7.1 billion from his $3.55 billion insurance policy, and in 2007 walked away with $4.55 billion, the largest single insurance settlement ever. As soon as the deal was announced, Silverstein sued United and American Airlines for a further $3.5 billion for their negligence in the 9-11 attacks, a claim that was struck down by the courts but is still on appeal. 
perhaps even more outrageously, in a secret deal in 2003, the Port Authority agreed to pay back 80% of their initial equity in the lease, but allowed the Silverstein Group to maintain control of the site. The deal gave Silverstein, Goldman, and Kerr $98 million of the $125 million they put down on the lease, and a further $130 million in insurance proceeds that were earmarked for the site's rebuilding. In the end, Silverstein profited from the 9-11 attacks to the tune of $4.5 billion and counting. But that's the 9-11 insurance heist you saw. There was a much deeper, more complex, and well-hidden heist that was taking place behind closed doors on September 11, 2001, deep in the heart of the World Trade Center itself. Martian McLennan is a diversified risk, insurance, and professional services firm with over $13 billion in annual revenue and 57,000 employees. In September of 2001, 2,000 of those employees worked in Marsh's offices in the World Trade Center. Marsh occupied floors 93 to 100 of the North Tower, the exact area of the impact and explosion. In the year prior to 9-11, Marsh had contracted with Silverstream Software to create an electronic connection between Marsh and its clients for the purpose of creating paperless transactions. Silverstream had already built internet-based transactional and trading platforms for Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, Bankers Trust, Alex Brown, Morgan Stanley, and other financial services firms that were later involved in 9-11, but this new project was unlike anything that had been attempted before. Richard Andrew Grove, the salesperson who handled the Martian McLennan project for Silverstream, explains. Silverstream was contracted by Marsh to provide a technological solution beyond what we had done for any of the above-named companies insofar as it will be used to electronically connect Mars to its major business partners via internet portals for the purpose of creating paperless transactions and expediting revenue and renewal cycles, and built from the ground up at the client's site. Silverstream provided a specific type of connectivity that was used to link AIG and Marsh and McLennan, the first two commercial companies on the planet to employ this specific type of transaction. And in fact, Marsh was presented with something called the Accord Award, A-C-O-R-D, in the summer of 2001 for being the first commercial corporation to do so. And what you should take away from that is this. It means that no other companies were doing this type of transaction, so the question in your mind should be, what then were Marsh and AIG doing, and why did they need to leverage technologies that no other commercial entity on the face of the earth needed to conduct business? The contract Silverstream then stationed approximately 30 to 40 developers at Marsh, and this team was led by two to three managers with whom I liaised to ensure delivery of the solution that was promised. The development team worked regularly into the night, if not all night, and sometimes worked seven days a week in order to adhere to Marsh's indicated pre-September 11th deadline. Now, while... But it was not long before severe irregularities in the billing of the account for this project led Richard Grove into the heart of a deeper mystery about the software and about the work that he was engaged in. This fiscal anomalies with respect to the Marsh.com project when I was in a meeting on the 98th floor in October of 2000 with a gentleman named Gary Lasko. Gary was Marsh's North American Chief Information Officer, and that particular afternoon, a colleague and I helped him identify about $10 million in suspicious purchase orders after I had recognized that certain vendors were deceiving Marsh and specifically appeared to be selling Marsh large quantities of hardware that were not necessary, as this was later confirmed by Gary. In the spring of 2000, I brought my concerns up to executives inside of Silverstream, and I was urged to keep quiet and mind my own business. I went to an executive inside of Marsh, and he advised me to do likewise. But then, I mentioned it to a few executives at Marsh who I could trust, like Gary Lasko and Catherine Lee, 
Ken Rice, Richard Bruhart, and John Oltoffer. People who became likewise concerned that something untoward was going on. The concerned colleagues I just mentioned were murdered on September 11th. And the executives who expressed dismay at my concerns are alive and free today because of it. I feel it's no coincidence as the Marsh executive who urged me to drop my line of inquiry made sure that his personnel who I just mentioned were in the office bright and early for a global conference call before the staff meeting upon which I was to intrude. A conference call which I was informed this executive in question conducted but attended from the safety of his Upper West Side apartment. Although getting the global conference call with Marsh's IT staff on the morning of 9-11, a meeting that included the staff who were investigating the suspicious billing on the Silverstream deal, was confirmed in a 2006 interview with Marsh's then Chief Information Officer, Ellen Clark. Richard Grove had been asked to attend the meeting, but was stuck in traffic on the way to the towers when the attack began. His friends at Marsh were not so lucky. 294 Marsh employees, including all of the participants in the conference call in the North Tower, died that morning. Meanwhile, the Marsh executive who had scheduled the meeting, the same one who had asked Grove to drop the issue of the billing anomalies, was safe in his apartment, attending the meeting via telephone. So what was the Marsh.com project really about? Why was it so important for it to be finished before September 11th? And what kind of transactions did it enable? More importantly, what information was lost when the data center on the 95th floor of the North Tower suffered a direct hit on 9-11 and the buildings were demolished? A partial answer comes from reports that emerged in late 2001 that a German firm, Convar, had been hired to reconstruct financial data from the hard disks recovered at Ground Zero. The firm talks about this work in its promotional videos. September the 11th, 2001. The whole world is in shock following the attacks on the World Trade Center. Convar has some solutions to offer. Data stored on countless hard drives retrieved from the collapsed towers was believed to have been lost, but Convar specialists can render irreplaceable information readable again at Europe's only high-security data recovery center. Burnt, crushed, or dirty storage media are ready to relinquish their secrets by the time we finish them. More details about the work comes from an IDG news service story posted to CNN.com in December 2001. Under the headline, Computer Disk Drives from WTC Could Yield Clues, the article notes, An unexplained surge in transactions was recorded prior to the attacks, leading to speculation that someone might have profited from previous knowledge of the terrorist plot by moving sums of money. But because the facilities of many financial companies processing the transactions were housed in New York's World Trade Center, destroyed in the blasts, it has, until now, been impossible to verify that suspicion. A Reuters article from the same time, later posted to Convar's website, offers revealing glimpses into the investigation's early results. It quotes Peter Herschel, Convar's director at the time. The suspicion is that inside information about the attacks was used to send financial transaction commands and authorizations in the belief that amid all the chaos the criminals would have, at the very least, a good head start. Of course, it is also possible that there were perfectly legitimate reasons for the unusual rise in business volume. It could turn out that Americans went on an absolute shopping binge on that Tuesday morning. But at this point, there are many transactions that cannot be accounted for. 
Not only the volume, but the size of the transactions was far higher than usual for a day like that. There is a suspicion that these were possibly planned to take advantage of the chaos. It also quotes Richard Wagner, one of the company's data retrieval experts. There is a suspicion that some people had advanced knowledge of the approximate time of the plane crashes in order to move out amounts exceeding $100 million. They thought that the records of their transactions could not be traced after the mainframes were destroyed. Was the revolutionary electronic trading link between AIG and Marsh being used to funnel money through the World Trade Center at the time of the attack? Were the attack perpetrators hoping that the destruction of Marsh's data center on the 95th floor at the dead center of the North Tower explosion would conceal their economic crime? One piece of corroborating evidence for the idea comes from author and researcher Michael Rupert, who reported in 2004 that immediately before the attacks began, computer systems in Deutsche Bank, one of Silverstream's other e-Link clients, had been taken over from an external location that no one in the office could identify. With, within, I would guess, I'd have to go back and look at the book, but it was no more than a week after the attacks. Um, I was being contacted by a lot of people uh, from uh, inside official sources who were raising a lot of questions. This one particular person was extremely credible. Uh, they absolutely convinced me they had been a, a, an employee of Deutsche Bank uh, in the Twin Towers. And they told me very clearly that in, in the moments right before the attacks and during the attack, there was a 40-minute window between the time the first plane struck the World Trade Center and the second plane, that Deutsche Bank's computers in New York City had been taken over, absolutely uh, co-opted and run. There was a massive data purge, a massive data download. And all kinds of stuff was moving. And what this person said very clearly was that no one in the Deutsche Bank offices in the towers at the time had the ability to prevent what was going on from any of their terminals. Sadly, no answer to the questions raised by these accounts is forthcoming from Convar. After the initial reporting on the investigation, which noted that the company was working with the FBI to recover and analyze the data, Convar now refuses to talk about the information they discovered. Is it true that large amounts of money were transferred illegally out of the World Trade Center on the morning of 9-11, just before the attacks? If you would look on the website, I would say yes, uh -huh. <laughs> because that was, that was uh, the information from, uh, from a previous release. Uh -huh. If you would ask me today, I would need to tell you that the, I, I could not give you any additional information about that. But I, I'm really sorry about that. At the time of 9-11, Marsh's chief of risk management was Paul Bremer, the former managing director of Kissinger & Associates who went on to oversee the U.S. occupation of Iraq. On the morning of 9-11, he was not in his office at Marsh & McLennan, but at NBC's TV studio, where he was delivering the official story of the attack. Uh, it's Paul Bremer. I want to make sure I'm getting your name right because right. I'm just meeting you right. just at right. this moment. You're a, you're a terrorism expert, counterterrorism. I hope, and 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 can talk to us a little bit about about uh, who who could. I mean, there are a limited number yeah. of groups who could be responsible for something of this magnitude. Yes, this correct? is a very well planned, very well coordinated attack, which suggests it's very well organized centrally. And there are only three or four candidates in the world, really, who could have conducted this attack. Bin Laden comes to mind right away, Mr. Bremer. Indeed, he certainly does. Bin Laden was involved in the first attack on the World Trade Center, which had as its intention doing exactly what happened here, which was to collapse both towers. 
he certainly has to be a prime suspect. But there are others in the Middle East, and uh, there are at least two states, Iran and Iraq, which should at least remain on the list of potential suspects. What, what kind of I, I don't recall anything like this. I, I, Pearl Harbor happened a month before I was born, and I hear my parents talk about that as a seminal event in their lives all the time. I am not aware of anything like this in the United States before. Americans are now, I think it's fair to say, really scared. Uh, should, should we be? This is a well, day that will change our lives, isn't it? It is a day that will change our lives. It's a day when the war, the terrorists declared on the United States, and after all, they did declare war on us, mm -hmm. uh, has been brought home to the United States in a much more dramatic way than we've seen before. So it will change our lives. On September 12, 2001, before the dust had even settled on Ground Zero, the Securities and Exchange Commission opened an investigation into a chilling proposition that an unknown group of traders with advanced knowledge of the 9-11 plot had made millions betting against the companies involved in the attacks. What many Wall Street analysts believe is that the terrorists made bets that a number of stocks would see their prices fall. They did so by buying what are called puts. If you bet right, the rewards can be huge. The risks are also huge, unless, of course, you know something bad is going to happen to the company you're betting against. This could very well be insider trading at the worst, most horrific, most evil use you've ever seen in your entire life. One example, United Airlines. The Thursday before the attack, more than 2,000 contracts betting that the stock would go down were purchased. 90 times more in one day than in three weeks. When the markets reopened, United stock dropped. The price of the contracts soared, and someone may have made a lot of money fast. $180,000 turns into $2.4 million when that plane hits the World Trade Center. It's almost the same story with American Airlines. That's a five-fold increase in the value of what was a $337,000 trade on Monday. All of a sudden becomes what? $1.8 million. And there's much more, including an extraordinarily high number of bets against Morgan Stanley and Martian McLennan, two of the World Trade Center's biggest tenants. Could this be a coincidence? This would be one of the most extraordinary coincidences in the history of mankind if it was a coincidence. Although the put options on American and United Airlines are usually cited in reference to the 9-11 insider trading, these trades only represent a fraction of the suspicious trades leading up to the attack. Between August 20th and September 10th, abnormally large spikes in put option activity appeared in trades involving dozens of different companies whose stocks plunged after the attack, including Boeing, Merrill Lynch, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Munich Re, and the AXA Group. Traders weren't just betting against the companies whose stocks dove after 9-11, however. There was also a six-fold increase in call options on the stock of defense contractor Raytheon on the day before 9-11. The options allowed the traders to buy Raytheon stock at $25. Within a week of the attack, as the American military began deploying the Raytheon-supplied Tomahawk missiles they would eventually use in the invasion of Afghanistan, the company's share price had shot up 37% to over $34. The SEC weren't the only ones interested in this particular 9-11 money trail either. Investigations into potential insider trading before the attacks were opened by authorities around the globe, from Belgium to France to Germany to Switzerland to Japan. 
it wasn't long before this global financial manhunt started yielding clues on the trail of the terror traders. On September 17th, Italian Foreign Minister Antonio Martino, addressing Italian CONSOB's own investigation into potential 9-11 trading, said, I think there are terrorist states and organizations behind speculation on the international markets. By September 24th, the Belgian finance minister was confident enough to publicly announce Belgium's strong suspicions that British markets may have been used for transactions. The president of Germany's central bank was the most adamant. What we found makes us sure that people connected to the terrorists must have been trying to profit from this tragedy. These foreign leaders were not alone in their conviction that insider trading had taken place. University of Chicago finance professor George Constantinides, Columbia University law professor John Coffey, Duke University law professor James Cox, and other academics as well as well-known options traders like John Nigerian all expressed their belief that investors had traded on advanced knowledge of the attacks. The scale of the SEC investigation was unprecedented, examining over 9.5 million securities transactions, including stocks and options in 103 different companies trading in seven markets, 32 exchange-traded funds, and stock indices. The probe drew on the assistance of the legal and compliance staff of the 20 largest trading firms and the regulatory authorities in 10 foreign governments. The Commission coordinated its investigation with the FBI, the Department of Justice, and the Department of the Treasury. The results of this investigation? We have not developed any evidence suggesting that those who had advanced knowledge of the September 11th attacks traded on the basis of that information. Although this sounds like the investigation did not find evidence of insider trading, a second look reveals the trick. They are not saying that there was no insider trading, only that there is no evidence that those who had advanced knowledge of the September 11th attacks participated in such trading. But this begs the question, who had that advanced knowledge, and how did the SEC determine this? The 9-11 Commission report begs the question even more blatantly in their treatment of the anomalous put option activity on United Airlines stock on September 6th. 95% of the puts were placed by a single U.S.-based institutional investor with no conceivable ties to Al-Qaeda. Again, it is taken as a foregone conclusion that a lack of ties to Al-Qaeda means there could not have been advanced knowledge of the attack, even if the evidence shows that insider trading took place. To be sure, Insider trading almost certainly did take place in the weeks before 9-11. Although some have used the commission report to conclude that the story was debunked, the intervening years have seen the release of not one, not two, but three separate scientific papers concluding with high probability that the anomalous trading was the result of advanced knowledge. In Unusual Option Market Activity in the Terrorist Attacks of September 11, 2001, University of Chicago professor Alan Potishman concluded, Examination of the option trading leading up to September 11th reveals that there was an unusually high level of put buying. This finding is consistent with informed investors having traded options in advance of the attacks. In Detecting Abnormal Trading Activities in Option Markets, researchers at the University of Zurich used econometric methods to confirm unusual put option activity on the stocks of key airlines, banks, and reinsurers in the weeks prior to 9-11. And in was there abnormal trading in the S&P 500 index options prior to the September 11th attacks? A team of researchers concluded that abnormal activity in the S&P index options market around the time of the attack is consistent with insiders anticipating the 9-11 attacks. The only question then is who was profiting from these trades 
and why was no one ever indicted for their participation in them? One lead is pursued by researcher and author Kevin Ryan. In Evidence for Informed Trading on the Attacks of September 11th, he examines an FBI briefing document from 2003 that was declassified in 2009. It describes the results of FBI investigations into two of the pre-9-11 trades that the Bureau had identified as suspicious, including the purchase of 56,000 shares of Stratisec in the days prior to 9-11. Stratisec provided security systems to airports, including, ironically, Dulles Airport, as well as the World Trade Center and United Airlines, and saw its share price almost double when the markets reopened on September 17, 2001. The trades traced back to a couple whose names are redacted from the memo, but are easily identifiable from the unredacted information. Mr. and Mrs. Wirt D. Walker III, a distant relative of the Bush family and business partner of Marvin Bush, the president's brother. The document notes that the pair were never even interviewed as part of the investigation because it had revealed no ties to terrorism or other negative information. In addition to begging the question, this characterization is provably false, as Ryan noted in a conversation with financial journalist Lars Schall. Wirt Dexter Walker at Stratisec hired several people from a, a company called the Carlyle Group. And the Carlyle yeah. Group had bin Laden family members as investors. Um, also, Wirt Walker's fellow director, James Abrahamson, was in close a close business associate of a man named Mansoor Ijaz, a Pakistani businessman. And Mansoor Ijaz claimed to be able to contact Osama bin Laden on multiple occasions. So there does seem to be some circumstantial evidence indicating that these people were connected to Al-Qaeda, at least to the point where we should investigate. And isn't it true that all, uh, also some members of the bin Laden family were actually in Washington at a, a gathering of the Carlyle Group on 9-11? That's true. Uh, the, um, the Carlyle Group had a, um, had a meeting at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Washington on September 11th, and present there were, were uh, former President George H.W. Bush, uh, James Baker, uh, and uh, the brother of Osama bin Laden. I believe his name was Salem. I can't recall his exact name. But they were there, investors uh, from the bin Laden family, meeting with Carlisle Group representatives in Washington on September 11th. Was this why the FBI thought better of questioning Walker over his highly profitable purchase of Stratisec shares right before 9-11? The CIA figures prominently in another line of investigation. One suspicious United Airlines put option purchase that was investigated by the FBI involved a 2500 contract order for puts in the days before 9-11. Instead of processing the purchase through United Airlines Home Exchange, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, the order was split into five 500 contract chunks and run through five different options exchanges simultaneously. The unusual order was brokered by Deutsche Bank Alex Brown, a firm that until 1998 was chaired by A.B. Buzzy Krongard, a former consultant to CIA Director James Woolsey, who at the time of 9-11 was himself the executive director of the CIA. So right after the attacks of 9-11, uh, the, uh, the name Buzzy Krongard surfaced, and just the, it was instant research that revealed that Buzzy Krongard had been uh, allegedly recruited by CIA Director George Tenet to become 
the executive director at CIA, which is the number three position right before the attacks. Uh, uh, and, and, and Alex Brown was one of the, uh, then a subsidiary of Deutsche Bank, uh, was one of the primary instruments or vehicles that handled all of these criminal uh, trades by people who obviously knew that the attacks were going to take place where, how, and, and involving specific airlines. Perhaps the most frank admission of insider trading is notable for three things. It was recorded on video, it has never been investigated by any agency or law enforcement official, and it was made by former CIA agent and frequent foreign policy commentator Robert Baer, the real-life inspiration for the character portrayed by George Clooney in Syriana. Talking to citizen journalists after a speaking event in Los Angeles in 2008, Bear was recorded on video making a startling assertion about 9-11 insider trading. And then the last thing I would leave you with is National Reconnaissance Office was running a, a drill of a plane crash into their building, and you know they're staffed by DOD I and know CIA. The, right? I know the guy that went into his broker in San Diego and, and said, cash me out, it's going down tomorrow. Really? Yeah. That tells us something. Yeah. That tells us something. Well, his brother worked at the White House. This truly remarkable statement bears further scrutiny. If Bear is to be believed, a former CIA agent has first-hand knowledge that a White House insider had foreknowledge of the attacks. And to this day, not only has Bear never revealed the identity of this person, but no one has questioned him about his statement or even attempted to pursue this lead. So how is it possible that the SEC overlooked, ignored, or simply chose not to pursue such leads in their investigation? The only possible answer, of course, is that the investigation was deliberately steered away from such persons of interest and any connections that would lead back to foreknowledge by government agencies, federal agents, or their associates in the business world. Unfortunately, we will likely never see documentary evidence of that from the Commission itself. One researcher requesting access under the Freedom of Information Act to the documentary evidence that the 9-11 Commission used to conclude that there had been no insider trading received a response that stated that the potentially responsive record
There's a video called, uh, Children full this of life, what education could be. Goes better with the theme that we've been running with lately. So we'll just uh, we'll watch this instead. Passed, faded, but not forgotten. Here's someone from back then. They're overjoyed to see their homeroom teacher is Toshiro Kanamori, same as last year. The best. Kind and tough and funny. But this sounds strange to a Western ear. The class goal for grade four is to understand how to live a happy life, how to care for other people. Mr. Kanamori's class has a tradition. Every day in homeroom, three students read aloud letters they've written. They're called notebook letters. They're written to the other students, and they're a true, surprising record of what these 10-year-olds really think. Happiness, irritation, determination, gratitude, whatever's real, because the other children will pick up whatever isn't. Late April, Ren Sueda comes to class for the first time in four days. His grandmother died. In his notebook, Ren writes about the death, the funeral, his loss. They were worried. They didn't know why Ren was away. Now they're moved at his pain and saddened by his loss. ボクベツ式だった。最後のお別れに花をいっぱい入れてあげた。僕は涙がボロボロと出た。みんなも泣いていた。バスで仮装場へ行った。1時間ぐらいでおばあちゃんは骨になっていた。おばあちゃんがい
えっと僕もばあちゃんがなんかなくながん全がんでなんか全体ががんになるので死んでその時に僕はもう And before long, the notebook has other memories rising to the surface. Mifuyu has been holding down her memories for more than half her life. She'd been afraid to talk about her father. She didn't want to seem different. She paid a price. Now, at last, she feels safe enough to talk about her missing parent. They're trying to understand. They all find it painful. Some find it unbearable. Yo Enomoto is the class spark plug, high energy, charming. Now he's remembering the death of his grandmother. それは、いい、素敵なこと。はい。でも、はい、元気よくだ。はい、食べよう。はい。うん。一番はやっぱり共感だろうというね。まあ、僕なんか大好きな言葉に心に人を住まわせる。うん。心に定員はないから、うん。
みんなに共感してもらって本当にこう聞く相手がいるとそうやって自分の心の中に人が住み着くそれが手紙ノートのものすごい大きな意味かなと思って。Her father was a designer. This was his last work, a model for a parade exhibit. He died before it was built. She didn't want to seem different. Now she's more a part of the class than ever. And now she can talk about her father and smile. Mr. Kanamori is 57 years old. He believes the world values life less every day. He believes a teacher's job is to show how precious life is. Other teachers visit his class to watch and learn. Japanese language class. The character means to wrap or enfold. Kanemori says it evolved from the image of a woman carrying an unborn child. Good teachers connect theory with life. June, halfway through the first semester, and a problem, a nasty one. A few children are being teased, bullied. The bullies laugh at their test scores and make up stories about them. It's vicious, destructive, and Kanamori says it has to be talked out and stopped cold right now. Bullying is contempt and hatred, completely indefensible. Kondai, 
軽蔑していたら友とは言いません本来はね本来はそういうものを仲間とは言わんです言わんです自分の中にある友達を見下げている心と向き合ってもらう Fine as far as it goes, but nobody's admitted to anything. Kanamori wants the bullies to confess and explain their behavior. Nobody admits anything. Kanamori's had enough. ジブンのことをやっぱり棚上げしていってるじゃないか。今の言い方だったらずっと。さっきからずっと抜けてるのはこれだよ。人のことばっかりやがいや。自分やってたよって誰も言ってないじゃないですか。かっこよすぎるんだよ。勉強できないから笑っていたでしょ。自分が。ちゃいますか。風呂は入らない。言ってたでしょ。聞いてたでしょ。広めたでしょ。ちゃいますか。ここにいる奥の人は。いつ手
She knew how much it hurt to be picked on, laughed at. It hurt so much, she was afraid to shelter someone else. She is remorseful. The lesson? We're all vulnerable. We must admit it and go on. for it. Mud games a la Kanamori. 35 10-year-olds blowing off all that steam. It may not be tidy, but it's good for grade 4 class 1's soap. October and one of the biggest events of the school year. They've spent a month working in three teams building rafts. Today, they go rafting. The rafts are their work. They designed them, scrounged the materials, built them by themselves. Today they're all at school a half hour early for the final free launch checks. It's a long wait till fifth period. And there's trouble when they get there. Mr. Kanamori is furious. Yuto Araki has been chattering and goofing around all morning. Mr. Kanamori's warned him it didn't work.
月半がえした時からずっとじゃないか違いますかじゃあなんでお前たちずっとだって分かってて問題にしないんだ荒木お前は今日するなする資格ない考えろ Everybody rafts, but Yuto. He stays on shore. But class one doesn't accept that. Yo Enomoto was in the same raft-making team as Yuto, and he's first on his feet to take on the teacher. This is a very dangerous challenge to a powerful authority. Yo's frightened, but he keeps going. Maruka chokes up, and a classmate moves in to help.
今から潰した時間を取り戻せ Launch is 40 minutes late, but the Raptors are happy. The next day, Yuto describes his feelings in a notebook letter. I caused a lot of trouble yesterday. I'm sorry. I want to thank Mayuka. She stood up for me to the point of crying on my behalf. And Yo and Kosuki, they were choked up too, but they still kept speaking out. Thank you. I want to thank everyone who cheered me up on the way to the pool. It should have been me crying all those tears. できたのは俺たちだから、あの、先生は、俺たちの苦労したことを取り上げるのは筋違いだ。ましてや、問題は別だ。いかだで問題起こしたわけじゃない。問題別だ。だから、解決は、これ独自であるべきだというのは、これは
はイタリ君ですでもこのとこ肩細いねめっちゃここ見てくださいこんな細いですか Tsubasa Ichitani's portrait doesn't look like Tsubasa much. His classmates help him with a new body. But there's a reason Tsubasa was shaking. しっかりと翼が今日欠席しました。正確には正確にはまだ言えないんだけど、翼のお父さんが今朝突然亡くなられたそうです。とんの中で朝気づいたらもう亡くなっていた。はい。水は私と同じだって言いましたね。水は三歳で突然にお父さんを奪われた。こんなことは次々と経験してほしくないし起きてほしくないけども悲しいかな命には約束がない。絶対だ。こういう約束はない。だからこそ生きることや命をしっかり考えてみてほしいし。翼を励ましてほしい。励ましてほしい。Tall order. His father's dead. They're ten. Here's a start. After school, Yo Enomoto and three friends call on Subasa with some snacks. Now, to business. Everyone in grade four, class one, writes to Basa a comforting letter. And three days later,
はい、はい、こんにちは、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、はい、なあ、つばさ。あそこ、あそこから来るな。でも、今日ならゆっくり呼んで。インディビジュアルレッツ。from children's hearts。and the calligraphy。painstaking。neat。beautiful。here's。Yo Enomoto's letter. You've lost your dad and the happy way he used to call out your name. I cry when I think about it. We can't make it better, but if there's anything we can do to help you, tell us. This letter from Mifuyu, the girl whose father died when she was three. Dear Tsubasa, I expect your dad dying still hurts really badly. But someday you'll be able to tell us about it. You've got to live on for your dad's sake now. Don't rush things, just hang in there. It's March. Only ten days of school left for grade four, class one. They'll be broken up, shuffled to other classes next year. So the last family project has to be a classic. Not surprising somehow that the fearless Yo and his pal Kenta have a brainstorm. Class meeting. They make their pitch. March 20th, letter day. Grade four, class one can't get outdoors fast enough. They're ending two years together with an act of mature, creative compassion. They're writing a giant notebook letter to the dead fathers of Tsubasa and Mufuyu. They scratch out their message in the hard earth. Each student writes one character.
It's ready. And it's big enough, clear enough, careful enough that you could read it looking down from heaven. Last day of school, March 24th. After two years, the students are going separate ways. One final time, Kanamori writes his favorite word, bonding. They're not always satisfied. They're not always well-behaved. They are 35 children. But perhaps they know something now most other children don't about trust, respect, and friendship. And although they're not always happy, perhaps they have a special inside track on happiness after two years with Mr. Kanamori. Some good things in that video, some things that seem to, you know, would be a little off there.
but then again, that's Japan. We're in America. I don't, uh, I don't really think that the same kind of stuff goes on over here. At least, you know, uh, it's not apparently happening. Um, but in any case, it is almost midnight. I'm going to get out of here. Thank you all for tuning in. My name is James Cordiner. Check out my website, freemindany.com. That's uh, a Hitchhiker's Guide to Truths, home base, and a second live stream, a little bit of a slower pace than the first one. Eh, you know, rough around the edges. What are you going to do? It'll work itself out. But thank you all for tuning in. Um, and, yeah, hit that. And subscribe to the page and everything and get notified and uh yeah so until next week uh just you know try to try to stay a little positive in in this crazy fucked up world that we're in and i i love you all peace